This is a crowd podcast. The more that they've harassed me, uh, the more this has been built up in the minds of, uh, of the media, of the public, and more dangerously, other police forces, that I'm someone who really is kind of dangerous or evilly disposed. And it's, uh, it's really quite ludicrous. If they just um, dismissed me as being completely harmless and a junior officer who knew nothing, which is probably the, is far closer to the truth, uh, right from the start, the press would never have been the size been interested in my story. This is former MI6 agent Richard Tomlinson. It was a secret meeting with him back in 1998 that led me to start investigating the Estonia. I was working on a current affairs TV show in New Zealand at the time, and I thought an interview with a former spy would make a good scoop. But I soon found myself in the middle of what felt like a John Lakari story. It's a bit of a twisting tale, but stick with me. It all links back to the Estonia in the end. In this episode, we're going to delve into the murky world of espionage, spies, and the fall of the Soviet Union. This is the secret history of the Estonia with me, Stephen Davis. I read about Tomlinson. He had left, or rather been sacked from MI6, and had tried to take them to an industrial tribunal because he wanted his job back. And um, he felt he'd done a good job, and he said he was given no explanation as to why he'd been fired. Tomlinson tried to tell his story several times. In one stage, he ended up in Belmarsh Prison in London. Anyway, I found out that Tomlinson had been born in New Zealand and had a New Zealand passport. So I came up with a plan. What if we get him out to New Zealand beyond the reach, uh, as I thought, of the long arm of British law and British intelligence and get him to tell his story. So with a very convoluted process of middlemen and intermediaries, we made contact with him. It's important to note that our contacts kind of used encrypted emails, which he said were completely safe. And um, I flew with a reporter and cameraman to England. And we met Richard in Manchester. Interesting man. He looked rather dashing and tall and uh, very confident. And of course, uh, had been trained in counter surveillance. So after we met, he took us on a long route around Manchester visiting places, changing direction, all all the spy stuff, which was quite interesting. And at the end of it, he said, we're okay now, and we can sit down and talk. So we um, had a meal at an Italian restaurant, and we arranged for him to come out to New Zealand. We came to an agreement. He would get himself to uh, Paris, and he would be uh, travelling under one of his false passports and identities, and from Paris come to New Zealand, where I would meet him, and we would quickly get him on camera before we were found out. So we left and went back to New Zealand, and Richard got himself to Paris and got on a plane to New Zealand. And I was waiting to meet him at Auckland International Airport. I was standing about 20 feet from the arrival's door. He stepped through the door 
And as I approached him, a man in a suit came up to him and said, you're Richard Tomlinson. Uh, Tomlinson, with his rather odd sense of humour, said, no, I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. But the man then handed him a set of papers. And then he turned to see me and he said, you're Stephen Davis. And he handed me a set of papers. It turned out, despite all our efforts, all our efforts at disguising what happened, they had found us out. And they had taken out already an injunction in court in New Zealand. They had got a, um, a judge, obviously a pro-British judge, to um, injunct us telling his story, injunct us from speaking to him. This was quite shocking, obviously. I got Richard into his hotel and I went back to my office at Television New Zealand to find out what the hell we should do. You know, the programme was due to go to air that night. We weren't going to mess around. Now we had this injunction. And it basically said he can't talk anything at all about his duties. Richard, by the way, had got very angry. Here was a man who had been harassed around the world by the British authorities everywhere he tried to settle. Anyway, he was very angry. Here he was, you know, back in his native New Zealand, a New Zealand citizen, and still being treated badly. And as it happens, that anger ended up backfiring on the British security establishment. So he's there sitting in his hotel, minding his own business, and I'm back at the office. And the door opens, and New Zealand police come in, searching the room, and with them, a man from Special Branch. He said, oh, hello, Richard, I bet you didn't expect to see me. And then he proceeded to tell Richard or torment Richard uh, with the fact that they knew absolutely everything that had happened when we were in Manchester. And I mean everything. He knew what I'd had to eat. He knew what that we'd all had to eat. They knew everything. They took his computer. They searched his room. And at the end of that, he was spitting tacks. So when I got back uh, to the hotel and went up to meet him, he was very angry indeed. Now, the thing you should know about Richard is that he never had ever any intention of giving away state secrets. I knew from the start that he would only tell me a few things, general things about his career, knowing things. He'd done good work in Bosnia. I know he'd been on a, a secret mission inside Russia. Um, but he was never going to tell me any state secrets. But he was angry. And as I stood there, he said, have you been following the story? And he got out of his, um, his suitcase a newspaper clipping. And it was about the sinking of the ferry Estonia. He said, do you know this story? And in truth, I'd only vaguely heard about it. And Richard said to me, you should look at this. You should investigate this. There's more to this than meets the eye. There's a smuggling operation. Now, he wouldn't tell me very much more. But ironically enough, the actions of Special Branch and British intelligence in, in trying to humiliate him led to him telling me about this and led me on a whole new investigation. 
So that's how I got started on this story. A little later in the episode, I'll tell you where my investigation took me. It wasn't where I expected it would go. But before that, I want to introduce you to Edward Lucas. I've been interested in Estonia all my life, and as a journalist in the early 1990s, I covered their regaining of independence from Soviet occupation. And I then ran an English-language weekly newspaper in Tallinn called The Baltic Independent. I've known Edward for years, and for this interview we met in London during an incredible heatwave. I started by asking him what it was like in Tallinn in the 1990s. In the early 1990s, Estonia was fighting for its survival, economically, politically, and in security terms. You had the Soviet occupation troops who were still there, even after the Soviet Union collapsed. It was unclear if they were really going to leave. You had serious problems with organised crime. Um, You had very new political institutions struggling to make themselves work, and a largely untried group of people um, learning how to run a country at the same time as dealing with existential questions. So there was a feeling of tremendous excitement and also a feeling of urgency that if you made a decision, implement it at once, introduce a new currency, done, free trade, done, get an army going, done. And in that atmosphere, speed was much more important than deliberation. And I think the results have been spectacularly successful for all its faults. Estonia is the standout success of all the ex-communist countries, given where it came from and where it is now. And the fairy Estonia was an important symbol of their nationhood, wasn't it? They were particularly proud of it. After decades in which foreign travel was extremely difficult, the idea you could just get on a ferry the way that other people might get on a bus and you could be in Stockholm or Helsinki or wherever overnight was like breathing air when you haven't been able to breathe properly. So Estonians were very keen on the ferry traffic and the Estonia was a... I wouldn't quite say flagship of the Estonian fleet, but it was a symbol of everything that they were, they'd been deprived of in the Soviet era and that they could do now. People don't realise, uh, it seems to me, what a frontline state it was and how precarious its relationship with the Russians is. Could you tell us a bit about that? Estonia's got a population of um, rather over one million and Russia has a population 140 times bigger. And Estonians have spent most of their life either being ruled by Russia or trying to get away from Russia or worrying that they're going to be ruled by Russia. And so it's it's the factor for them. And they don't have any great natural frontier. It's not an island. It's hard to defend. So this means that their foreign relations are very important and they also prize their relationship with Britain and with the United States. And when they broke free from Russia, one of their first tasks was to set up an intelligence service. Tell me about that. Estonia's always had a connection with British intelligence. There were close cooperation in the 90s and 20s in the first independence era. There were many British operations inside Estonia during the Soviet era, some of which were spectacularly unsuccessful, some of which were more successful. And when Estonia regained independence, one of the first things they did was to set up an intelligence service and they decided it would have to have a big friend. It was too small a country to do it on its own. And that that big friend could only really be Britain. And so essentially MI6 helped set up and became the partner of Estonian intelligence. Yes, it was a very, by intelligence standards, a very quick and extremely successful arrangement that the... um, three people, none of whom had a background in intelligence, who set the service up, approached MI6. There was a 
initial meeting, MI6 wanted to be sure that this was indeed a, a proper government legal service. And then they started with training and with operations. And the Estonians were extremely useful to MI6 because they spoke excellent Russian. They understood the Soviet mindset. And I describe in my book, Deception, that the Baltic states were a kind of intelligent sweet shop. It was full of decaying Soviet structures, both physical and military and security. So it was a great place to find secrets, to recruit people. And the Estonian Intelligence Service, the Information Board, as it was known, was a very useful ally because these were young people who really understood the way the Soviet Union worked and could get inside the Soviet mentality in a way that most Westerners can't. So there was a, a close and harmonious relationship between British intelligence and, and, and particularly MI6. This MI6 connection is crucial. Now seems like a good time to fill you in on what happened after my Tomlinson tip-off. I was back in my native New Zealand during the whole Tomlinson saga, but after meeting and falling in love with my now-wife Penny... I headed off to the UK to be with her. I began working for the New Statesman magazine and writing a book, the manuscript which was to become the secret history of Flight 149, the first series of this podcast. I was investigating that story, a tough nut to crack, but I had not forgotten about the Estonia. The Russian media had been investigating the story for years. Russia, like Britain, signed the agreement that prevents divers from exploring the wreck. I enlisted the help of a couple of Russian journalists. This was back in the days before Putin, when the country still had independent media. But investigating the story was still a dangerous business. Other Russian journalists who tried to get to the bottom of the story, and who raised questions about the involvement of the Russian government, were warned by the authorities to back off. Eventually, my colleagues had to stop too. One of them said to me he did not want to end up like Dmitry Kolodov, who was murdered in October 1994 when he opened a briefcase which contained a bomb. He had picked up the case that morning from the left luggage section at a train station in Moscow after being told it contained documents exposing corruption in the armed forces. Obviously, I completely understood why my contacts couldn't help me any further with my investigation. The last thing I wanted to do was to put anyone at risk. So we went our separate ways. This backdrop of fear is one of the reasons it's been so hard to investigate this aspect of the Estonia. Even before Putin, journalists could find themselves in grave danger for asking the wrong questions. Someone who understands these dangers better than most is Dr Amy Knight. She's an expert on the KGB, and her book, Orders to Kill, documents dozens of political murders under the Putin regime. If you look at the history of Russia in the 90s, there was a lot of violence and there were a lot of extrajudicial killings going on. Sometimes they were generated by the mafia, sometimes businessmen who were in conflict with other businessmen, but oftentimes the security services were involved in some way. And so they had very good reason to be nervous because it wasn't just that it had to be authorized at the top, but a lot of it was going on at the lower levels as well. One of them I had a conversation with cited the case of a, of a journalistic colleague called uh, Dmitry Kolodov, who uh, was investigating the selling of sensitive state equipment 
apparently on the black market by military intelligence. And um, the journalist, one journalist in particular, who I had a conversation with, said this shows that this was such a dangerous area. And and like you said there, a kind of almost the place where military intelligence and the mafia and others might merge together in some murky underworld and and the result of investigating it could be you got killed. Yes, that was a very well-known case and it was very sad and it aroused a lot of public concern. I, I remember that well, that was in 1994. And yes, it, Probably there could have been many reasons why uh, he was killed, but definitely it was for his writing and it was to prevent something from being written and something that he was investigating. And it's entirely possible that the military intelligence was involved. So just returning to my investigation for the moment, after my Russian sources had to step away, I eventually found other sources in the UK and Sweden who told me about a super-secret Swedish intelligence unit called the KSI. Even today, Swedish journalists and politicians are reluctant to talk about the KSI. The key to understanding it is its name in English, the Office for Special Acquisition. Those acquisitions, I was told, included highly sensitive documents electronics and other equipment smuggled out of Russia via Estonia and then by ferry to Sweden. This confirmed what MI6 agent Richard Tomlinson had told me that day in a hotel room. He'd said there was a smuggling operation at the heart of the Estonia mystery and that I should investigate. It turns out he was right. Just months after my sources confirmed this, the whole story blew wide open in the Swedish press. A whistleblower came forward to make a stunning revelation in a TV interview. That's coming up in part two. Do you want more crowd podcasts? Let me tell you about the Crowd Stories channel. It's where you can find all of Crowd's documentaries. In one place. And for just £1 a week, they're ad-free. Addictive documentaries like American Vigilante. I'm a monster hunter. It's what I do. And murder in house too. I know you know what happened. You want to keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. You can binge our groundbreaking audio fiction series, Eliza, a robot story. I have 302 minutes, 34 seconds, and two milliseconds to tell this story. And immerse yourself in the stories of death of a rock star. Just search for Crowd Stories on Apple Podcasts. And hit the subscribe button. See you there. Welcome back to the secret history of the Estonia. Let's jump straight back into these smuggling revelations. A whistleblower came forward, a customs officer, who said that in mid-September 1994, he witnessed military electronics being smuggled off the ferry and that he was told by his bosses not to search particular cars. When he asked who gave the order... He was told it came from as high up as you can get. The interview caused uproar in Sweden. Suddenly, here was an eyewitness saying he'd seen military equipment being smuggled off the Estonia just days before it mysteriously sank. 
the Swedish government launched a new inquiry. They instructed a judge called Johan Hirschfeld to investigate. His report concluded, Through the investigative work, it has been possible to clarify that on two occasions during September 1994, the Swedish Armed Forces transported defence material on MS Estonia, namely on the 14th and 20th of September. It goes on to say, The material comprised electronic equipment without any link to weapon systems. The material was in no way of an explosive nature. And then, towards the end, in the investigation, no information has come to light that gives reason to assume that the Swedish Armed Forces on any occasion during September 1994, other than the 14th and 20th, transported defence material on MS Estonia. That's a pretty carefully worded statement if you ask me. Lars Ångström, the former MP we met in the last episode, was suspicious about the judge's findings. We had a hearing of him in the Swedish parliament a couple of weeks after he presented his investigation. And uh, I recorded that uh, hearing on uh, my small movie camera um, and asked him uh, about the orders, who gave the orders for these uh, transports, uh, from where did they come? Uh, to whom were they going, and uh, he said that he's forgotten all about it. And um, then uh, I asked him uh, about the background material, if he had forgotten about it, maybe it was to be found in the background material, and he said uh, he had destroyed all the background material, and I asked him uh, why and he said that he understood his mandate in the way that he was going to destroy uh, all background information. In the end, though, all the judge did was confirm the two dates for transport that he really couldn't avoid confirming because a Swedish customs guy had already blown the whistle on those two. So he had an investigation in which they admitted to the two that they had to admit to and ignored every other possibility. The Swedish uh, group involved in the operation, the Swedish uh, organization, was the KSI. This is super secret here. Nobody seems to want to talk about it. Yeah, I mean, that was our criticism against the Hirschfeld investigation and the government's broken promise that the most likely Swedish part, if there had been any transports uh, that Swedes has been doing, it was the KSI office. They worked with that kind of things, transporting uh, different military equipment to Sweden from abroad. So if anyone in Sweden was responsible, it was KSI, but they were not to be investigated by Hirschfeld. Or it could be another uh, country's uh, secret military agent uh, agency that was responsible for transporting something, and that was not going to be investigated by Hirschfeld. Or it could be a, a private company transporting uh, things from Russia, selling to, to the West. That has been uh, happening before. We have proofs of that. And that was not going to be investigated by Hirschfeld. Or it could be Russian or Estonian mafia, uh, criminal organizations smuggling or transporting military equipment, and that was not going to be investigated by the Hirschfeld's investigation. So basically this judge had what we would call an extremely limited frame of reference. Extremely limited, and it was not supposed to find out anything, that's my opinion. 
Johann Hirschfeld declined our request for an interview, but he did point us towards an interview that he gave on Swedish radio in 2021. When he was asked why he destroyed the background material, he said that he introduced the relevant information from his notes into the text he was writing, but that it's common practice not to keep work notes. But there was one particular part of the interview that stood out to me. When he was asked about the eyewitnesses who saw military transport on the ferry that night, he said, I think there might be information I didn't get. The interviewer goes on to ask if he wonders if other states or channels might have been involved. He replies, There is that question, of course, for me as for everyone else. In his book Deception, Edward Lucas wrote about the smuggling of military secrets out of Estonia in the 1990s and about how Russia warned the Estonians to stop. I asked him to read us a passage. Estonian spies were brazenly approaching any official with saleable secrets and often walking off with precious pieces of military technology from under the noses of their ill-paid and under-motivated guardians. In the late summer of 1994, Russia delivered what it believed was a severe warning to the Estonian authorities to stop assisting Western special services in stealing military secrets. For the Russians, the warning was unambiguous. Passed through diplomatic channels, they expected it to be acted on at the highest level. But on the Estonian side, it was taken merely as a bit of routine grumbling. The message was not heeded and possibly never even received in the right quarters. Now, given what you know um, and your long experience of looking at the Russians and, and writing about them and studying them, this is a warning that should have been taken seriously, isn't it? I think the Estonians were absolutely right to do what they were doing. And I think MI6 was absolutely right to be working with the Estonians to do this. We had a window of opportunity. We didn't know how long it was going to last. And nobody likes being spied on. I think that the correct response to this warning would have been to continue, but to increase precautions and to reckon that if the Russians had warned us publicly, they might be going to do something else to drive home that warning. I'm not sure that that uh, approach was taken. I also asked Amy Knight about whether this warning should have been taken more seriously. Yes, probably it should have. I think, again, we're talking about 1994. And this was a period when Russia seemed to be very open. They were even talking about some people, Russia joining NATO. And I think that the West didn't understand that basically, even though publicly there was a, an acquiescence to the inevitable situation with the Baltic states joining NATO and so on and so forth, but I think that the West underestimated the extent to which the Kremlin still considered the Baltic states as sort of part of their territory. Now, you might remember this from episode one. I couldn't see my father, but when I was looking for him, I noticed there was uh, transport uh, coming in very high speed. And when they came closer, I could see there was military transport. And they were escorted by motorbikes on the sides. And they were traveling really fast. It turns out that Sarah was an eyewitness to one of the key aspects of the story. But people have tried to discredit her and her accounts. One journalist, he wrote me a letter about it. And he was saying to me that it was a false memory and that it was planted in me 
by other journalists that he named uh, by name. And he said that I was a victim in the story. And he, he was saying you, 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 the memory is false, the memory is not real. Yeah, yeah, the memory is false. And uh, he said it was a classical f- uh, false memory. And he said that without knowing anything about my memory. I mean, that to me is just astonishing behaviour for a journalist. And, and I think also you told me this man called your employer. Yeah, it was the same man. He sent me uh, many emails and he asked me for an interview and I tried to explain to him I, I didn't feel comfortable with him and I didn't want to be interviewed by him. Um, that doesn't mean I have difficulties to talk about my memories, but I didn't feel trust to this man. I looked him up, this journalist, after our discussion. Uh, we, we don't need to use the name, but um, he's, he's known in Sweden as somebody who has said for many years that Russia is no threat to Sweden. Yeah, I learned that now. I mean, that seems to me to be quite a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And what, as I said, I find it inexplicable that any journalist would be writing a letter, having never met you, saying your memory is false. It's almost like he's acting on somebody's behalf to try and make you forget what you saw. Did you feel that? Well, I didn't even think about that option. But I don't know. I don't know his uh, intentions. Let's recap. A Swedish whistleblower confirmed there was a smuggling operation on the Estonia. And so had my intelligence sources. And there was a compelling eyewitness, Sara, who saw military transports arrive just before the ferry departed that fateful night. Why would someone try to discredit her? To what end? Well, to answer that question, we need to look at the way the Estonia tragedy, like many devastating events where questions are left unanswered, has given rise to crazy conspiracy theories. Some of these theories have been adopted by the extreme right, who use the Estonia to further their anti-establishment deep state rhetoric, or by anti-Semitic groups who see global conspiracies in every corner. But many of the most bizarre theories have originated in Russia. One television report claimed that the Russian-Estonian mafia had placed a limpet mine on the hull, using a miniature submarine, to warn the shipping company that it should pay protection money. There was another story that involved Arab terrorists sinking the Estonia on orders from Russian intelligence officers. Some of these stories reflected the tendency of the Russian media at the time to publish or broadcast wild or conspiratorial theories. But they also have the hallmarks of disinformation, a speciality of Russian intelligence services throughout the Cold War, where fake documents and lies were leaked to journalists to embarrass, confuse and influence political debate. The flood of secrets and technology that flowed out of the Soviet Union after it collapsed attracted the attention of a group of senior KGB officers, true believers who mourned the demise of their empire. They wanted to preserve and protect the secrets of the state and became determined to shut down the pipeline sending information to the West. They were known as the Felix Group. Russian newspapers reported the group had formed to assassinate corrupt politicians they blamed for the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
The group was also said to be targeting KGB officers involved in drug smuggling and other organised crime. A few months after the Estonia sinking, a Felix Group report was sent to media organisations all over the world. It comprised dozens of pages, most of them devoted to linking Chechens to organised crime. Russia was fighting a brutal war in Chechnya at the time. But alongside the anti-Chechen propaganda were allegations about organised crime in Estonia and that Estonia was a transit hub for illicit weapons from Russia to Europe. The report, which I have a copy of, then gave a seemingly detailed account of what had happened to the ferry Estonia. It claimed that their account was based on wiretap conversations. It said the Estonia had two illicit cargoes on board, heroin and cobalt. Cobalt can be a gamma ray source and highly radioactive. The Felix account said the ferry captain was involved in drug trafficking. A rival gang tipped off customs officers who were waiting in Sweden to seize the shipment and arrest the captain. But someone alerted the Estonia and the captain was ordered to get rid of the cargo of cobalt. They tried to dump the illicit cargo via the bow door and accidentally sunk the vessel. It was all very odd. A classic piece of disinformation. Explain the sinking in a way that directed attention away from the state to non-state actors, blackening the reputation of Estonians, sowing confusion, but with a kernel of truth and a warning. We know you are stealing our weapons and smuggling them out on a ferry. An official investigation by the Estonian parliament later concluded the so-called classified Felix report, which appeared in the press, is an intentionally misleading document based on erroneous data. In all probability, this report on organised crime was produced by special services of a state unfriendly to Estonia. There's no doubt who they were talking about. Among the early members of the Felix Group, according to my sources, was a junior officer, one Vladimir Putin. When I revealed this publicly, it made headlines in the Swedish newspaper Expressen. Where there is a major disaster, conspiracy theories flourish. Gaps or inconsistencies in official accounts are investigated by legitimate journalists and pursued by survivors and relatives of victims. Questions are asked which governments cannot or will not answer. How better to disguise an actual conspiracy than to surround it with invented conspiracies? The more outlandish, the better. Legitimate questions are then lost among the noise generated by these wild theories, amplified and spread by the internet. It all blurs together in the public mind. And it makes the job of real investigative reporters so much harder. If you are trying to spread outlandish conspiracy theories, an eyewitness account like Sarah's is, of course, inconvenient, to say the least. Perhaps you might try to discredit her by suggesting her memories are false. There was one Russian newspaper story from an independent news outlet that caught my eye. It said there were space laser systems on board, stolen from Russia and en route to the West. As we have seen, perhaps that last story is close to the truth. 
So the Russians may have had very good reasons to produce disinformation about the sinking of the Estonia. Next time on The Secret History of the Estonia. It is possible to recover entire wreckage. It has been done uh, in the past on other fair disasters. So there is the proof. There is, you know, it's not a speculation. There is no question about that whatsoever. This is something that they wanted over with a long time ago. And he were a, a former state prosecutor just keeping going that you must be irritating some people. Probably, yes. Probably I have been a trouble for, for them. The Secret History of the Estonia is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis, and produced by Samantha Syke. Mixing and sound design is by Rory Auskari. The music we use is from our partners, the EMG Production Music. Additional material from TV3 New Zealand. To listen to the entire series ad-free and for exclusive bonus episodes, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. If you haven't already, take a listen to the first Secret History series, The Secret History of Flight 149. It's the tale behind how a passenger plane got caught in a war zone, leaving hundreds of people at the mercy of Saddam Hussein. Hear from the human shields who were held hostage in Kuwait, and from those who spent years searching for the truth. Find the secret history of Flight 149 on this feed. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. <laughs>